Morning, everybody. Five, six, seven, eight. Nobody get excited. Come back to that in a second. We are thankful for your presence this morning. It's a beautiful Sunday, great Lord's Day worship that we've had uh, already. Singing has been beautiful. Appreciate the prayers and the opportunity to uh, gather and communion, <clears throat> excuse me, communion, eat the sacred feast together and with our Lord. I hope that you have already made plans. If not, it's not too late to make plans, but I hope that you'll be here tonight at 5 o'clock for evening worship. We'll gather back in here this evening for more singing, more prayer, more opportunity to give God uh, our hearts and minds, and then a sermon that will very much follow up what we're talking about this morning in the sermon. It's not a part two. You're not getting half a sermon this morning, another half this afternoon. It's more of uh, a different perspective on a similar idea. It's kind of a yang to this morning's yin. So I hope that you'll be here tonight, because if you're not, you're only going to get half the picture. I know I just said it wasn't half a sermon, but it's a whole sermon that paints half a picture. All right, so that's a little nuance there. Uh, so be here tonight at, at five o'clock for what is going to be more of a negative, more of a rebuking, not to you guys, to a false doctrine, a false teaching that exists about uh, something to do with salvation. I don't know if you're aware of this, probably you are. There is a lot of false teaching that exists in this world about what God wants you to do. That should be no surprise to you. There's a lot of false teaching, there's a lot of error that is being taught, there's a lot of lies being spread about what God expects of you so that you can do what you need to do to go to heaven, so that you can take advantage of the free gift that God has given to you through the sacrifice of Christ. I have an eyelash, just a second, it drives me crazy. So if you aren't not paying attention, you might find yourself being led astray, you might find yourself being uh, led off course by the devil's lies. It should not be a surprise that the devil is fighting this battle on the battlefield of truth. Because if you have the truth, then the truth shall set you free, your master says. And so, of course, he's going to spread lies. He is the, the harbinger of lies. He is the father of lies. And all those who lie after him are of their father, the devil. So there is naturally, necessarily, a lot of lies being said about salvation. Because if he can get you believing what is not true about salvation, then he can get you not saved. Therefore, we need to understand what those lies are. We need to be aware of them so that we can identify them, know what they are saying, and what the Bible says in response to them. That's tonight's sermon. But if you're here this morning and you're not saved, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this morning's sermon is for you. Because it would be inappropriate, I think, for me to spend just my time today just talking about what salvation is not and not give you the true alternative of what salvation actually is. You need to know what God is offering you. You need to know what has been bought and paid for and the extended arm of the Lord is outstretched towards you to come take from His hand the free gift of grace. You need to know what salvation is so that you can also know what it is not. So this morning, I want to talk to you about what salvation is. And to do that... I want to give you a simple illustration, a simple metaphor built around a beautiful flower, the tulip. I want to use, it's summertime, it's still hot outside sometimes, but I want to use this beautiful springtime flower that's this, uh, so synonymous with new beginnings and new birth and the new life that comes with the springtime to talk to you about the new beginning, the new birth, the new life that you have in Jesus Christ. The word tulip has five letters. Each one of these points will correspond to a letter that make up the word tulip. 
I want to give you the title you can see behind me is entitled A Better Tulip. You may already be ahead of me. You may already know about the so-called tulip doctrine, which is a series of false teachings, a series of false statements, a series of false ideas that began with their father, the devil, and have been permeated by those who follow after that father, the devil, the father of lies. So you may already be ahead of me. You may already know what we're going to talk about tonight, but that's for tonight. That's the terrible tulip we're going to talk about tonight. This morning, we're talking about a better tulip. A better one than what the devil offers. This tulip the Lord offers. This is the salvation of Jesus Christ. And what do we know about the salvation of Christ? What, what is the facts about the salvation? What are the facts? What is the truth about what Jesus offers you, bought and paid for on the cross? First of all, what you know about the salvation of Christ is that it is thanks to grace. You, read, you heard the reading just a moment ago. If you've already closed your Bibles, open them back up to Galatians chapter 3. Like I said, we have five points. Each one's going to be taken from a verse or verses from the end of Galatians chapter 3. But I want you to notice, first of all, that your salvation is thanks to grace. That is to say, you did not earn it. You did not buy it. You did not do something to where you could look up to the heavenly host and the God who sits on the throne above them and say to God, you owe me. Uh, you are in my debt, and you have to pay off that debt by giving me something. I'll take salvation, thanks. No, that's not how it works. Salvation has been offered to you. You're not making the deal with God. He's offering you something, me something, that we don't deserve. In one word, that is grace. Listen to that idea manifested in Galatians 3. Look at verse 24 and 25. My Bible says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster the reading we had a moment ago was guardian we'll get to that in a second the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto christ that we might be justified by faith but after that faith has come we are no longer under a schoolmaster guardian was the other word your bible might have a different translation there let me tell you what that word is referring to way back in the early days when children would go off and be back in the old testament times they would go off and they would uh, be taught about god and taught about the law of god and taught about the word of god from a qualified instructor a rabbi or someone like that and so those children yes there was a lot of instruction a lot of teaching going on in the home but there was also formal instruction that was done sometimes by a rabbi and that rabbi would teach them in a specific location not in the home of that child because there are many children from many homes who would learn from that rabbi and a person would come to each house and gather up the children like little ducks ducklings following a mama duck and they would follow that person to the feet of the rabbi to the place where he might teach them that person whose sole job it was to shuffle the children and shuttle the children to the school of the rabbi, that person was called, in some translations, a guardian. In my translation, a school master. Glorified bus driver man. That's it. It's a needed job. It's an important job. But it's a specific job with a specific purpose. That guardian can't impart all that those children need to know. That guardian can talk about some things because he himself was once a child and has learned, but that guardian can only go so far and it can only do so much because he, the guardian, that schoolmaster, is not the rabbi. The rabbi's job was to give you the inf information that you need. The schoolmaster's job was to get you to the rabbi. Paul says the old law of Moses was a schoolmaster, a guardian, a glorified bus driver man to shuttle us humanity to the Christ, the rabbi, the master teacher, the one that we need to give us what we have to have in order to be saved. The, the law of Moses can talk about those sort of concepts. The law of Moses can give us application. This is, we're having a, a young adults class that I'm 
in, for some reason, a young adults class on Sunday mornings. Now we're talking about the Ten Commandments and the old law and the purpose that it serves. Let's not criticize the old law of Moses. Let's not criticize what we call the Old Testament. That is inspired record. That is inspired writing given to us by God there to provide for us instruction and learning. It is there needed for us to know because it paints the picture. It points us to the cross of Christ. It leads us to the feet of the Master so that from Him we attain salvation. Without the Old Testament, we're left with half a picture. We don't see the fullness of the plan of God unveiling. The law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And after we achieve the having of Christ, after that faith in Christ is revealed to us, we don't need the schoolmaster anymore. The job is done. Its job is incomplete if you don't listen to it. But if you listen to it entirely, you realize that itself is incomplete, imperfect by design. Because it can't do what Christ can do. The law can't take away your sins. Christ can and Christ will. Imagine though, if the Old Testament could take away your sins, what would you need to do to be saved? You would check the boxes of the Old Testament laws. You would check the boxes of all the commands of God and you would say, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done that. And now because I've done that, now I've paid my debt, now you owe me. I put in all this work to do all these things, now you have to give me salvation, but your salvation does not come by the keeping of the law. Your salvation came by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Your salvation is thanks to grace. A gift given to you that you do not deserve. To see that in a different text, stay in Galatians 3, we're going to come back to it, but go to Ephesians chapter 2 and see how the Apostle Paul, same author, conveys this similar idea using phraseology we're more familiar with probably on this subject. Look at Ephesians 2 starting in verse 4 and I'm going to read through verse 9. Paul writes, But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He's loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, He has quickened us, the old Bible says, made us alive together with Christ. And then he adds this little parenthetical, by grace are you saved. Close parentheses, and then he keeps going. He's going to repeat those words in just a second and add more to them, but he tosses that out there as like the summary of everything he just said. Everything he starts in verse 4 leads to him summarizing it in this one little pithy little statement, because it's by grace you're saved. So look at that again. Look at verse 4 again. God, who is rich in mercy for his great love that he loved us when we were dead in our sins, he, despite who we were because of who he is, brought us to life from the deadness of our sins. And how do you summarize that? By grace are you saved. And then he keeps going. And he has raised us up together and made us sit in the the heavenlies with Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Because it is by grace that you're saved through faith, not of yourselves. You didn't create salvation. You didn't invent salvation. You didn't dream up salvation. You didn't buy salvation. It wasn't your blood on the cross. Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not of works, lest any man should climb that works hill plant that flag of theirs on that hill and say, look what I have done. Everyone look at me and my accomplishment. That is not of Christ. There's no hill for us to climb on. There's no hill for us to die on. He climbed the hill. He died on the hill. It was called Calvary 2,000 plus years ago. He planted his flag on that hill. It was his cross. Then he went and died on it so that I could be saved. That's thanks to grace. That's the T in our better tulip. For the U... Consider this, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what the rest of the world thinks about you. It doesn't matter what categories the people of this world might try to box you into. God's salvation is unprejudiced for all. Anybody, anywhere, 
under any circumstances, no matter what you have done, can be saved. No matter what you're doing in this exact moment, you can be saved. No matter what you might do, in spite of what He's offered you, you still have the opportunity to be saved. His salvation is unprejudiced. That's Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female because you are all one together in Christ Jesus. Let's take that at the top again. There is neither Jew nor, the old Bible says Greek, but that's not just the people of Greece, non-Jews. And that's everybody, either a Jew or a non-Jew. Whether you are a person who once upon a time had a covenant relationship with God, given to you by the, the, the great man Moses with the tablets of stone coming down from the mountain of Sinai with the great booming voice and the thundering and lightning of God's presence, and you were those people, and Moses sacrificed the animal and sprinkled the blood on the people, and he said, this is the blood of the covenant that is given to you and your generations, and you're part of that ancestry. You're of those tribes. Great. Salvation is for you, but not you exclusively. Because if you are somebody whose ancestors do not trace back to Moses, or to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you're someone who, whose ancestors trace back to paganism of Greece or Rome or Asia or anywhere else in this world or Africa or South America or anywhere else where the people were not ever in their history as far back as you can think about, going back to Babel, following God, still salvation is for you. Salvation is not a club where people of this world get to define who belongs to it. Salvation is a free gift given to the whole world, John 3.16. So there's neither Jew nor non-Jew. There's neither bond nor free, slave or free man. By, by definition of being a slave, and I'm not thinking in the spiritual context, I mean in this world, by definition of being a piece of property owned by another person, a person owned by another person, by that definition, you have no rights. And whatever rights you have are given to you piecemeal by that slave owner of yours. Necessarily, by living in that life, you are restricted in what you can do, what you can say, what you can have. So you're used to, in that environment, existing in a world where gifts are rare things. Free blessings are rare occurrences. And yet here is the greatest gift given to all. And it is given in the same measure to you, a slave, as it is given to a man who's never been in bondage to another. It is given to you, a slave man, as it is given to a free man. Now, in this country, obviously we have that in our history. But in this modern day, other than a, a prisoner, a, a criminal who has done the crime and is now doing the time. Just in general, people are not slaves anymore. And so is this part of this verse still applicable? Absolutely. Because there is still classism in this world. There is still racism in this world. There is still um, the, the, the desire, the the cliquish nature of this world to have people around me that I like and to look down on those who are not part of that group. And there is this sense of entitlement that comes with those who are like me, who look like me, who dress like me, who have the same bank account size as I do, and to look down on those who do not. But there is neither person of low stature or high stature when you are both in Christ. There is, obviously, people of low stature and high stature. There are, obviously, people who are high class and low class. There are people who have, and there are people who have not. And there are people who have power and money, and they use one to get the other. If they have one, they usually have the other. And there's people who have neither, and they suffer in this world. But when those who are in Christ are in Christ, then it doesn't matter what you have. Because your, your riches are shared with your brethren in Christ. Your privileges, your blessings are not coming from you. They're coming from Christ. And you're getting the same that I'm getting. 
So it doesn't matter what you have, and it doesn't matter what you look like, and it doesn't matter what was in your past. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male or female. Biologically, people are still men and women. That's not Paul's point here. Paul's point is to say, especially back then, when it was a male-centric, a patriarchal society, especially back then, when if you were a woman who did not have a husband, or if you were so, young, so old you didn't have a father, you were out in the curb unless somebody took care of you. That's why the law of Moses was specifically written in different ways to govern and care for women who were widows or who were orphaned, who had nobody, because they were going to be especially left out in a society that was male-dominated and male-oriented. They had less privileges, fewer privileges than what a man would have. But in Christ, the privileges are given to you by a fair and just and equal distributive God. Whether you're man or woman, male or female, you both get the same blessing because the blessing is salvation. It's thanks to grace, not thanks to you, lest you make the rules. It's unprejudiced for all. T-U-L. It is limited to the obedient now, God's salvation is limitless in its invitation. God's salvation is unlimited in how freely it is available and how much you can draw from that, wa- that wellspring of God's grace. But whether or not you accept the invitation, whether or not you take Him up on the offer, that's the limit. Because He's not going to make you obey the Gospel. He has freely offered you salvation. Now you must freely take it. By sacrificing yourself for Christ. He has sacrificed Himself for you. Now you must sacrifice yourself for Him. And if you don't, well, He has already talked on this subject. There is a broad way that leads to destruction and many go in thereat. And there is a narrow, constricted, restrictive way that leads to life. And few there be that find it. In that same setting, He says there was a wise man and a foolish man. A wise man who builds his house on a rock. A foolish man who builds his house on sand. And when the rains come, the the waters flood and wash away the house built on sand. But the house that is built on the rock stays secure, stays firm, stays upright. Why? Because the foolish man is the one who hears the Word of God and does not do them. The wise man is the one who hears the Word of God and obeys them. And whether you are one or the other, that is the limitation of the Gospel. That is the limitation of salvation. It can only be extended to you. You must be wise enough to take it. And you might be foolish enough to reject it. Galatians 3. Look at verse 29. Galatians 3.29 If you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Do you want to belong to Christ? Here's the limitation. Here's the restriction put on you. You want to belong to Christ? You must allow yourself to belong to Christ. That's an act of humility. That's a willingness to wrap yourselves in Christ. You are not accepting Christ. Christ is accepting you, which means you have to accept the terms that he offers you. It's not, I'll take Jesus, okay, well, it's going to be my way. If I'm going to be a Christian, it's going to look like this, it's going to act like this, I get to do this, and I get to go there, and I get to say that. No, you're not accepting Christ. He's accepting you. We're going to sing just as I am a little bit, right? Just as I am. That's great. That's the invitation. But I got news for you. You don't get to stay that way. It's just as you are, you get to come to Christ so that he can remake you just as he is. You don't get to dictate the terms to Christ. He dictates the, dictates the terms to you. And he says to you, if you want to come after me, you must take up your cross and come follow me. Do you want to be Christ? Then you must be Abraham's seed and heir according to the promise. What does that mean? Go back in this same chapter. Go back to verse number six. 
even as Abraham believed God, and it was put on his account that he was a righteous man. What did Abraham do to become so famous in Holy Writ? Abraham believed God. What did Abraham do that was so important that everyone needs to look at him as an example? Abraham did not just know that God was. Abraham did what God said. Because Abraham's faithful obedience led him to blessing, that becomes the template for you. And if you are faithfully obedient, then you can belong to Christ. You can be Christ's, but it's limited. You've got to choose to do that. Thanks to grace, unprejudiced for all, limited to the obedient, T-U-L-I. It is immediate upon baptism. That is to say... It is not, your salvation does not come immediately when you believe that Jesus died for you. Your salvation does not come immediately when you feel guilty about the sins that put him on the cross for him to die for you. Your salvation does not come when your guilt compels you to want to do something about it. Your salvation does not come immediately when you tell other people how much you now love Christ for what he has done for you. Your salvation comes when you bury your old self in a watery grave and you allow Christ to wash your sins away in that grave and you rise to walk in newness of life. That's Romans 6, 3, and 4, but it's also Galatians 3, 27. For as many of us as have faith in Christ Jesus have been baptized into Christ. Look at what he says. I'm going to read it exactly because I was paraphrasing it. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I said in the previous point that you have to cloak yourselves in Christ. You have to wrap yourself in Christ. You must drape Christ around you because you are a sinful you and you stick out like a sore thumb to holy eyes. But if you cloak yourself, if you conceal yourself, if you wrap yourself in righteousness, then the wrath of God will have nothing to do with you. How do you do that? How do you put yourself in Christ? You must be put into Christ. And then when you have been put into Christ, then you get to belong in Christ. And being in Christ means having faith in Christ. It means being obedient in Christ. It means living in Christ. It means having the blessings of salvation that come to those who are in Christ. But if you're not a Christian, you're outside of Christ. So there's no faith outside of Christ. There's no salvation outside of Christ. There are no blessings to be found from Christ outside of Christ. You must be in Christ. Christ. Now, how do you get to be in Christ? Galatians 3.27, you must be baptized into Christ. And if you've been baptized for any other reason than to be put into Christ, you got wet, but you do not get saved. Because your salvation comes by thanks, thanks to God's grace immediately upon your being baptized. Now, I say that, and someone's going to hear that, and someone's going to think, well, it sounds like you're earning your salvation. Sounds like you're saying, I'm going to check this box of baptism, and now I get to say to God, all right, I've done this thing, now you have to save me. That's not how it works. God has told you to be baptized. You didn't come to God and say, I'm going to do this, and I have now therefore earned this, and now you're going to give me that. No, God has said to you, take up your cross and follow me. Well, what does it mean to take up your cross? It means to put yourself to death. How do I do that? It's not a literal death. That was for him. For me, it's a spiritual death. Put your spiritual life to death. Put your old spiritual self to death, the one that's been tainted and marred by sin. Put that to death and bury it in a watery grave. You're doing what he told you to do to take the gift he's freely offering you. Elijah Mobley, pay attention. I have $8 here given to me by your father benevolently, lovingly, undeservedly. Do you want these $8? I'm sure you do. If you want these $8, you must come over here and take them. Come on, don't be shy. 
There's definitely a catch. Go sit down. <laughs> His father gave him that money, right? I didn't, that was no my cash. Sean gave me that money a minute ago. And now it's been given to Elijah. Now he has $8 that he didn't have before. Did he do anything to deserve that money? No, he did not. That money was a gift, wasn't it? From his father, given through an intermediary, which in this case is me. I'm a poor substitute for Christ, but that's the illustration. The Father in heaven has given you a gift. Do you want that gift? Here it is. Come and take it. And just because you got up and walked over and claimed the thing that he freely bought and paid for you to have does not mean you earned it. You didn't earn it. That's why it's called a gift. It's grace. But it is not grace that is forced upon you. It is grace that is given to you if, if, conditional, if you obey, if you take up your cross and come follow him, if you put your sins to death, if you are baptized into Christ. He had to come into this pulpit to receive the blessing of, of the money. You must come into Christ. So you must be baptized. T-U-L-I. And those that are are, are preserved in Christ. You have faith in Christ. You have salvation in Christ. You have all the blessings that come from being in Christ, in Christ, not out of Christ, but in Christ. And so you've been baptized into Christ. And now in Christ, you get to be preserved. Not like pickled and jammed, preserved. But actually, similar concept. You get to be held secure, held safe, protected from your enemy who now sees you as not his possession anymore. Now you are God's possession. That's the great irony of Christianity. You, you have the lie given to you by the devil that you're free, that you can do whatever you want, you can live however you want, but you can't. You don't. You're not a free person. You are a slave to Satan. He has tricked you into shackling yourself. Christ has come by through the cross and unlocked the handcuffs. You are now free and the devil is continuing to lie to you to tell you that the gate is still locked, that the shackles are still barred, that you are still where you are, his possession. But it's not true. You're free. All you got to do is get up and walk out and walk into him. But the devil will lie and the devil will tell you, you don't need to go over there. Where you are, you're free. Where you are, you can do whatever you want and you're in a dank, dark dungeon of despair and you will stay there until you take the free gift he's given you that is jesus christ and those who do take that gift immediately the devil will look at you as someone i need to start lying to in a different way not to tell them to stay but to tell them to come back and the devil will lie to you and he will connive and he will trick and he will steal and he will lie and he will do whatever he has to say or do to you to get you to walk away from christ because while you are in christ you're preserved step out of christ and there are no blessings, there is no faith, there is no, there is no preservation, there is no blessing of, of contentment and satisfaction, and there is no promise of heaven to come because you have been tricked to walk out of the hand of Christ. Christ did not grab you and force you against your will to be put in his hand, and Christ will not squeeze you and hold you to stay in his hand. You must choose to go to, you must choose to stay in, but the devil will lie. Do not listen, stay in. And be preserved. Galatians 3, 26. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Remain faithful in Christ. And in so remaining, remain pure. Remain preserved. Remain protected. Verse to go along with this is Re Revelation 2, verse 10. And then I'm going to be done. The devil will come after you. He will Cast some of you into prison. You'll have tribulation. You'll be tried. You'll have suffering for 10 days. That's not a literal 10 days. That's an intermediary period of time that's going to last for a while enough to hurt. But then one day it'll end. 
But in the meantime, it's going to hurt. You're going to have tribulation. You're going to be tried. You're going to have hardship. You're going to have suffering because the devil's going to hurt you. He's going to come after you. He might even try to kill you. Be faithful, even if it kills you. And he, Christ, will give you a crown of life. Remain in the hand. Remain preserved in. Be faithful, even if it kills you. And he will give you a crown of life. That's the tulip. Your salvation is thanks to grace. It is unprejudiced for all. It is limited to the obedient. It is immediate upon your baptism. And for those who have it, it is preserved for you to have now and forever, for as long as you stay in Christ. If you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, this invitation is for you just like this whole sermon was. There's a lot of false teaching out there about salvation. That's what the Bible says. That's what the truth is. Now it's time for you to take the mantle and obey. Will you take the response of Christ, the invitation of Christ and respond to it? If you will, please come right now as we stand and sing.